Chapter 9 So ended my eventful first day at Limeridge House. Miss Halcombe and I kept our secret. After the discovery of the likeness, no fresh light seemed destined to break over the mystery of the woman in white. At the first safe opportunity, Miss Halcombe cautiously led her half-sister to speak of their mother, of old times, and of Anne Catherick. Miss Fairley's recollections of the little scholar at Limeridge were, however, only of the most vague and general kind. She remembered the likeness between herself and her mother's favorite pupil as something which had been supposed to exist in past times. But she did not refer to the gift of the white dresses or to the singular form of words in which the child had artlessly expressed her gratitude for them. She remembered that Anne had remained at Limeridge for a few months only, and had then left it to go back to her home in Hampshire. But she could not say whether the mother and daughter had ever returned, or had ever been heard of afterwards. No further search on Miss Halcombe's part, through the few letters of Mrs. Fairley's writing which she had left unread, assisted in clearing up the uncertainties still left to perplex us. We had identified the unhappy woman whom I had met in the night-time with Anne Catherick. We had made some advance, at least, towards connecting the probably defective condition of the poor creature's intellect with the peculiarity of her being dressed all in white, and with the continuance in her maturer years of her childish gratitude towards Mrs. Fairley. And there, so far as we knew at that time, our discoveries had ended. The days passed on, the weeks passed on, and the track of the golden autumn wound its bright way visibly through the green summer of the trees. Peaceful, fast-flowing, happy time. My story glides by you now, as swiftly as you once glided by me. Of all the treasures of enjoyment that you poured so freely into my heart, how much is left me that is purpose and value enough to be written on this page? Nothing but the saddest of all confessions that a man can make. The confession of his own folly. The secret which that confession discloses should be told with little effort, for it has indirectly escaped me already. The poor, weak words which have failed to describe Miss Fairley have succeeded in betraying the sensations she awakened in me. It is so with us all. Our words are giants when they do us an injury, and dwarfs when they do us a service. I loved her. Ah, how well I know all the sadness and all the mockery that is contained in those three words. I can sigh over my mournful confession with the tenderest woman who reads it and pities me. I can laugh at it as bitterly as the hardest man who tosses it from him in contempt. I loved her. Feel for me or despise me. I confess it with the same immovable resolution to own the truth. Was there no excuse for me? There was some excuse to be found, surely, in the conditions under which my term of hired service was passed at Limeridge House. My morning hours succeeded each other calmly in the quiet and seclusion of my own room. I had just work enough to do in mounting my employer's drawings to keep my hands and eyes pleasurably employed, while my mind was left free to enjoy the dangerous luxury of its own unbridled thoughts. 
a perilous solitude, for it was followed by afternoons and evenings spent, day after day and week after week, alone in the society of two women, one of whom possessed all the accomplishments of grace, wit, and high breeding, the other all the charms of beauty, gentleness, and simple truth that can purify and subdue the heart of man. Not a day passed in that dangerous intimacy of teacher and pupil in which my hand was not close to Miss Fairley's, my cheek as we bent together over her sketchbook, almost touching hers. The more attentively she watched every movement of my brush, the more closely I was breathing the perfume of her hair and the warm fragrance of her breath. It was part of my service to live in the very light of her eyes, at one time to be bending over her, so close to her bosom as to tremble at the thought of touching it, at another to feel her bending over me, bending so close to see what I was about, that her voice sank low when she spoke to me, and her ribbons brushed my cheek in the wind before she could draw them back. The evenings which followed the sketching excursions of the afternoon varied, rather than checked, these innocent, these inevitable familiarities. My natural fondness for the music which she played, with such tender feeling, such delicate womanly taste, and her natural enjoyment of giving me back, by the practice of her art, the pleasure which I had offered to her by the practice of mine, only wove another tie which drew us closer and closer to one another. The accidents of conversation, the simple habits which regulated even such a little thing as the position of our places at table, the play of Miss Halcombe's ever-ready raillery, always directed against my anxiety as teacher, while it sparkled over her enthusiasm as pupil, the harmless expression of poor Mrs. Vesey's drowsy approval, which connected Miss Fairley and me as two model young people who never disturbed her. Every one of these trifles, and many more, combined to fold us together in the same domestic atmosphere and to lead us both insensibly to the same hopeless end. I should have remembered my position and have put myself secretly on my guard. I did so, but not till it was too late. All the discretion, all the experience which had availed me with other women and secured me against other temptations failed me with her. It had been my profession for years past to be in this close contact with young girls of all ages and of all orders of beauty. I had accepted the position as part of my calling in life. I had trained myself to leave all the sympathies natural to my age and my employer's outer hall as coolly as I left my umbrella there before I went upstairs. I had long since learned to understand, composedly, and as a matter of course, that my situation in life was considered a guarantee against any of my female pupils feeling more than the most ordinary interest in me, and that I was admitted among beautiful and captivating women, much as a harmless domestic animal is admitted among them. This guardian experience I had gained early. This guardian experience had sternly and strictly guided me straight along my own poor narrow path, without once letting me stray aside to the right hand or to the left. And now I and my trusty talisman were parted for the first time. Yes, my hardly earned self-control was as completely lost to me as if I had never possessed it. 
lost to me as it is lost every day to other men in other critical situations where women are concerned. I know, now, that I should have questioned myself from the first. I should have asked why any room in the house was better than home to me when she entered it, and barren as a desert when she went out again. Why I always noticed and remembered the little changes in her dress that I had noticed and remembered in no other woman's before. Why I saw her, heard her, and touched her when we shook hands at night and morning, as I had never seen, heard, and touched any other woman in my life. I should have looked into my own heart and found this new growth springing up there and plucked it out while it was young. Why was this easiest, simplest work of self-culture always too much for me? The explanation has been written already in the three words that were many enough and plain enough for my confession. I loved her. The days passed, the weeks passed, it was approaching the third month of my stay in Cumberland. The delicious monotony of life in our calm seclusion flowed on with me like a smooth stream with a swimmer who glides down the current. All memory of the past, all thought of the future, all sense of the falseness and hopelessness of my own position lay hushed within me into deceitful rest. Lulled by the siren song that my own heart sung to me, with eyes shut to all sight and ears closed to all sound of danger, I drifted nearer and nearer to the fatal rocks. The warning that aroused me at last and startled me into sudden self-accusing consciousness of my own weakness was the plainest, the truest, the kindest of all warnings, for it came silently from her. We had parted one night as usual, no word had fallen from my lips at that time or at any time before it that could betray me or startle her into sudden knowledge of the truth. But when we met again in the morning, a change had come over her, a change that told me all. I shrank then, I shrank still from invading the innermost sanctuary of her heart and laying it open to others as I have laid open my own. Let it be enough to say that the time when she first surprised my secret was, I firmly believe, the time when she first surprised her own, and the time also when she changed towards me in the interval of one night. Her nature, too truthful to deceive others, was too noble to deceive itself. When the doubt that I had hushed asleep first laid its weary weight on her heart, the true face owned all, and said, in its own frank, simple language, I am sorry for him. I am sorry for myself. It said this, and more, which I could not then interpret. I understood but too well the change in her manner, to greater kindness and quicker readiness in interpreting all my wishes before others, to constraint and sadness and nervous anxiety to absorb herself in the first occupation she could seize on, whenever we happened to be left together alone. I understood why the sweet, sensitive lips smiled so rarely and so restrainedly now, and why the clear blue eyes looked at me, sometimes with the pity of an angel, sometimes with the innocent perplexity of a child. But the change meant more than this. 
There was a coldness in her hand. There was an unnatural immobility in her face. There was, in all her movements, the mute expression of constant fear and clinging self-reproach. The sensations that I could trace to herself and to me, the unacknowledged sensations that we were feeling in common, were not these. There were certain elements of the change in her that were still secretly drawing us together, and others that were, as secretly, beginning to drive us apart. In my doubt and perplexity, in my vague suspicion of something hidden, which I was left to find by my own unaided efforts, I examined Miss Halcombe's looks and manner for enlightenment. Living in such intimacy as ours, no serious alteration could take place in any one of us which did not sympathetically affect the others. The change in Miss Fairley was reflected in her half-sister, although not a word escaped Miss Halcombe which hinted at an altered state of feeling towards myself. Her penetrating eyes had contracted a new habit of always watching me. Sometimes the look was like suppressed anger, sometimes like suppressed dread, sometimes like neither, like nothing in short which I could understand. A week elapsed, leaving us all three still in this position of secret constraint towards one another. My situation, aggravated by the sense of my own miserable weakness and forgetfulness of myself, now too late awakened in me, was becoming intolerable. I felt that I must cast off the oppression under which I was living, at once and forever. Yet how to act for the best, or what to say first, was more than I could tell. From this position of helplessness and humiliation, I was rescued by Miss Halcombe. Her lips told me the bitter, the necessary, the unexpected truth. Her hearty kindness sustained me under the shock of hearing it. Her sense and courage turned to its right use an event which threatened the worst that could happen to me and to others in Limeridge House. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.